I like an old-fashioned choir, don't you? And an old-fashioned choir leader. Thank you, Mr. Bruce. <laughs> All right, turn back in your Bibles to John 19. John 19. It, of course, is at this very point in John's Gospel that we come to the account of the crucifixion of Jesus the Christ. As we outline our thoughts for this passage of God's Word, I think you can begin to see from what we read in the biblical text, four main depictions of Jesus are given to us here. We have first, Jesus' substitution. Secondly, Jesus' kingship. Thirdly, his priesthood. And finally, his sonship. His substitution, his kingship, his priesthood, and his sonship. John, of course, does not include all of the other details that the other gospel accounts do. We call them the synoptic gospels because all three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are approaching the details of the life and ministry and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ somewhat similarly, all of them adding their, their own details to make it whole. And then John is here uniquely adding what we could call is a theological account of the life of Christ, and uh, he even adds some things that the synoptic gospels do not. And so in these four depictions, theologically speaking, as we could conceive them in our minds, go like this. And the first one is Jesus' substitution. Jesus' substitution. Look back at the latter part of verse 16 to verse 18. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. This taking of Jesus to the place of execution undoubtedly included another flogging. This, my friends, would have been the worst flogging. There were degrees of scourging. Just before someone would be crucified, this would be the worst perpetrated upon them. The mention here of Jesus bearing his own cross includes the idea of the wood that he would be carrying, and that wood would be the cross beam. And they would have hoisted it upon his shoulders and Jesus would have placed then his arms around and above so that he could carry the cross beam of his own cross. And of course, when he became physically due, I'm sure, to the floggings and the prior beatings, when he could not handle the cross beam anymore, because of the physical exertion and because of the pain. Of course, the other gospel accounts and the synoptics say that Simon of Cyrene was pressed into service and he carried 
Jesus cross the rest of the way. No contradiction here, just uh, something that John chooses not to include. So Jesus carries it part way, Simon the rest of the way. And notice what John says here, the place of execution was called the place of a skull. That's an Aramaic phrase called Golgotha. The emphasis, the accent being on the last syllable, Golgotha. And that, of course, is even an English transliteration of the Aramaic word. In Latin, the word is Calvaria, from which, of course, we get the word Calvary. And John gives us this detail because in part, I believe, looking at verse 18, John says, with incredibly understated brevity, given the utter significance of this event for human history, this is what he merely says, there they crucified him. Simple, to the point, matter of fact, doesn't mean there's no emotion here just means that John is stating for his purposes that Jesus died. Crucifixion, as you know, was one of the most gruesome, horrifying forms of execution in the ancient world. Here's what would happen. At least just a few details that John doesn't include. The criminal who was being charged and who would then be found guilty of his crime would be stripped totally naked. I'm sure that partly because of this act it was so that he could be ashamed, whoever he might be, and that others could shame him because of that nakedness with what they'd be saying. The Jews, of course, would not have wanted this because of their laws regarding public nakedness, and so they may have suggested that Jesus have a small loincloth placed around him. So it could have been that Jesus was in this condition, but certainly was nearly, if not altogether, naked. He would have been scourged already, as we saw last time. He's now scourged again right before the cross. I told you that they had already put a mock robe, a robe of a sort of a scorning royalty, on his back, it would have been affixed to his flesh, which would have been flayed open because of the whip of the scourge. And now they're stripping that robe off as he carries his cross to Golgotha. It would have been intensely painful. He would have been suffering for several hours. First of all, by those previous beatings and the scourgings, and now by the carrying of the cross and now by the agony of the cross itself and it was so very agonizing. It would include taking this crossbar that had been partly carried by Jesus himself, placing that crossbar now, affixing it to the, the vertical bar which would have been standing some eight or nine feet high. The crossbar of course would be in the middle and it would be just above the ground but not enough to where your feet could rest on the ground. Jesus' arms would have been held out, of course, and either tied or 
in Jesus' case, nailed to the crossbeam. Even those nails that would be hammered through his flesh would have been at least 8 to 10 inches long so that it would be clear that they would not be able to come off the cross by their own effort. His legs would have been drawn up at the knees. His two feet would have been placed together at the bottom of that cross. That nail that went through both of his ankles would have been uh, the kind of uh, agonizing pain because there would have been a little board that would have been attached so that he would at times be able to sit on the board of the vertical cross and when he was nearing the place where he couldn't breathe hour after hour, they would gather themselves up and they would stretch in the northward direction so that they could breathe normally like you and like me. And then when they couldn't hold themselves up anymore, they would go back down in that semi-sitting position. And then you would have almost that sense of asphyxiation because you couldn't breathe. So you would have to lift yourself up again and you would go in this up, down, up, down, agonizing position for hours and it was a slow, painful, excruciating, agonizing death. No wonder the scripture would say, and he breathed his last. This is what's happening. And John doesn't give us all of those details. He simply says, there they crucified him. We also know from the other gospel accounts that there were two other men who are being crucified on either side of him. John tells us that, but he doesn't tell us anything else. These men, according to Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verse 38, and Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 27, add that these men were robbers, which incidentally and interestingly is actually the same word that John uses here in his gospel, of course, not about Jesus, but about Barabbas, John 18, 40. So Barabbas as the insurrectionist, the robber, the murderer, and now these two thieves, the robbers, the murderers. We find, of course, that one of them, according to Luke's gospel, Luke 23, verses 39 to 43, this particular thief repents. And we know by God's good grace, he must have seen the very agony of that one who was in the center between the two thieves, including himself, And God had opened his eyes to the truth of his own sinfulness. And he repents. And you remember, he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, right? Your glory. And what does Jesus say to him? Today, you shall be with me in paradise. What does the other thief do? The Bible says that he continues to hurl his mocking scorn on the person of Jesus and I presume even the other thief as well. So if you ask me the question, what's the theological significance? If that's why John's writing what he's writing, 
And it's not as though he's not writing historical details. He most certainly is. We see that. But what's the theology behind it? Well, I don't think it would be hard to imagine, especially with this concept of the two thieves on either side of Jesus, the reminiscence of Isaiah 53, 12, which says, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Now, maybe that's actually a reference not merely to the two thieves, but all the transgressors for which they continue to hurl their taunts at Jesus. And maybe instead of Isaiah 53, maybe it's more Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 is going to be referenced very particularly and very carefully by John later. And so maybe Psalm 22 is in view here, particularly Psalm 22.16, for it says this, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers evil encircles me. Maybe that's why John puts Psalm 22 in mind for us here. And of course, we could even say, all right, here's the historical and here's the theological perspective, but what about moving to the spiritual and the personal? And I think you and I can easily do that, easy to apply this, because in a sense, you and I are representative of those who stand near the cross and who continue to scorn the Son of God. You say, well, I, I, I don't do that. Well, you don't do that now, but you did before you came to Christ. Because of your sin, because of my sin. I, I was like that, that thief on the cross, and even though one of them repented, he was earlier hurling his own taunts at Jesus. And in a sense, I could say, spiritually speaking, personally speaking, I was one of those thieves for in my life, even though I was created by God, created in the very likeness, in the very image of God, I, like you, went my own way. I was the captain of my own ship, right? I was the master of my own destiny. And I looked at this creator God, and I spurned him. And like a thief, I stole all of the good gifts that he gave me, and I impoverished them in my living like the prodigal son. And then the Lord opened my eyes. And the Lord gave me the truth of seeing, even in that one phrase, there they crucified him. The reality that there I participated too in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because it was my sin, it was your sin, that was the very reason for which Christ died upon that tree. That's Jesus' substitution. So, if you're like the person who just wants to read clinically these words, there they crucified him. And can you hear mockers today? Oh, there they crucified him. So what? Big deal. Who cares? Means nothing to me. In fact, I think this is all a forgery anyway. Well, why do you stand up there as the preacher uh, giving week by week by week 
all of the explanations of what the Bible is teaching when I don't even believe the Bible at all. You see, there are continuing to be mockers and scorners today, right? And yet for us who believe, when we read these words, as short as they are, there they crucified Him. It sends shivers up my spine. Because I know I was one of those in the number of transgressors for whom Jesus' own substitution was the result. Put yourself there. Jesus is your substitute. Secondly, not only Jesus' substitution, but Jesus' kingship. Look at verses 19 to 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. <clears throat> so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. You see in these words, the idea behind them that it is the kingship of Jesus that John is wanting us to know from a theological perspective. Uh, it was common, historically speaking, that a plaque or a sign would be in the hands of a criminal or maybe around his neck and it would be the charge against him, the charge of the criminally accused. And depending on the severity of the crime, if it was very severe, they wouldn't just put it as a placard that the criminal would have to carry with him, not around his neck, but in the case of Jesus, in the case of the king of the Jews, a, a kind of offense that was so overwhelming to the Jews, that they didn't put it around his neck, they put it on the top of the cross. And why did they do that? It may very well have been a warning to others, other passers-by of the great punishment that would be inflicted on anyone who would claim such a thing. You're the king of the Jews? Or maybe for the Gentiles, they would just put it up on the top of that cross so that they could continue their sadistic, mocking opportunity to jeer Jesus Christ being crucified. Certainly the other Gospels say that very thing. They continued to hurl their threats at Jesus. You remember they even said, you, you who say that you will save others, you come off the cross and save yourself. Come on. And John goes on to write that Jesus' crucifixion was occurring near the city of Jerusalem that day. Many of the Jews, it says, were reading the inscription on Jesus' cross. And given that this was a trilingual crowd, right? The Jews living in Palestine in the greater Judean area would have spoken Aramaic. In fact, many believe, and it's probably accurate, that Jesus himself was speaking Aramaic to the Jews. And so there it is, an inscription across in Aramaic, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But not only that, also in Latin. Latin was the 
the language of these Roman soldiers and from those inside Rome itself. And uh, they would have written, uh, they would have seen that written and they would have assumed, of, of course, that this is some kind of sect, this is some kind of Jewish uprising and they see it themselves and they see this Jesus and they see these two thieves and they re read what is written in Latin and they continue their hurling taunts. And then the Bible says in Greek, which would have been the lingua franca of the day, it would have been a sort of like what is enjoyed around the world and that is our native language, English. It would have been the most... Uh, common tongue of most of the world at that time, the idea of Greek. And so in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek, to cover everyone, and everyone was uh, of those who were literate in those languages, read that very thing. King of the Jews. And you know what the incredible irony of this is? He actually is the king of the Jews. And the irony is that Caiaphas the high priest and Annas who went before him to whom he was related, Caiaphas said in John 11, look, if there is a man that you're concerned about and his name is Jesus and the Jews are following him and they believe him to be their king or at least some of them, I tell you, I prophesy in fact that if you allow this one man to die for the people, if it doesn't mean anything, this uprising will all go away. It'll all just be another flash in the pan. But if it isn't, then you'll be going against even what God himself is putting forward. And boy, did he prophesy more than he knew. And now here's Pilate. Pilate writes this inscription, not himself personally, but he had it written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And on the top of that cross, and on the most visible execution that they'd ever seen, the irony, of course, is that Pilate says, what I have written is what I have written, what is done is done, and he certainly, when he wrote through his soldiers this sign, had no idea that Jesus Christ is, in fact the king of the Jews, and not only the king of the Jews. He's actually the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And what, what John says by brief notation, the apostle Paul says in bold relief in Philippians chapter 2, and this is what he says, that Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who in fact has this name that is above every name and that at the name of Jesus that every tongue should confess, every knee shall bow that Jesus is Lord. And in the understated brevity of the Apostle John he simply notes Here's the king. Here's the king of all kings. Here's the Lord of all lords. And did you know that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Psalm 96.10, the Bible says this, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, and then a gloss from the tree. Psalm 96.10. The Lord reigns from the tree.
It doesn't look like it, does it? It doesn't look like the Lord is reigning. It doesn't look like Jesus is in control, but He is. And in this moment, my friends, in this very moment, the Jews who are hurling their taunts at Jesus just a few days later, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter, and you remember Peter himself had denied the Lord three times, and then he repented, and Jesus had earlier said, this is what I'm praying for regarding you, Peter, that after this denial, you will turn, you will repent. Then when you turn back, when you repent, you will be strengthened and you'll strengthen your brothers. And boy, did he, because at Pentecost, he, Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, says this in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you... And it, it was some of these very Jews who were standing there mocking Jesus, he says, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer, that's Barabbas, to be granted to you, and you killed, Peter said, the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. I'd say that's pretty bold preaching, wouldn't you? Some of the very ones of the Jews who actually convinced the Romans to put him to death were standing right there as Peter preached. And no doubt what Jesus said on that cross came true at that very moment. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you remember the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians... Chapter 2, these words, it's amazing. But we, Paul says, we, the apostolic band, including himself, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Uh, the world doesn't even understand this kind of wisdom. What kind of wisdom, Paul? God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age, he says, Pilate, Caiaphas, Herod, none of the ages, none of the rulers, they didn't understand, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Wow. Perhaps the greatest irony which John brings to us here is that the King of kings and the Lord of lords really is the one who is now dying on that cross. That's his kingship. And while he doesn't look like a king, right then, right there, he's your king, and he's my king. Thirdly, how about Jesus' priesthood? Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic or his robe, but the tunic was seamless. Notice the detail that John gives to this. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And then notice John's annotation here. This, this very act of the soldiers, especially with regard to this woven seamless robe, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And guess what? That's right out of Psalm 22. 
right out of Psalm 22, verse 18. Again, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is obviously what John was using for his reference. They divided, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And we know that this was in the mind of Jesus, Psalm 22, because guess what Psalm 22, 1 says? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in the mind of the Savior. Psalm 22, he was, he was praying Scripture back to God. And at his death, they took his garments and they took his outer garments and they were ripping those garments and they were dividing them among the four soldiers. But when they got to the inner garment, the robe that they had laying a few feet, I'm sure, from the cross, they, they took that and they realized this is, this is something special. And, and if you say, well, what's John doing? What's, what's going on? What might be the, the significance of this, even from a symbolic viewpoint? Well, did you know that in Exodus 28, 2, it says, and you, God speaking, shall make holy garments for Aaron, the high priest, for glory and for beauty? Exodus 28, 2. John says that Jesus' robe was seamless, potentially pointing to the care, the beauty, and fashioning it, and that it was not to be ripped from top to bottom. And did you also know that this being so significant and interesting to me at least, that the word woven that John uses here, the Greek word woven, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for which John was so very familiar that word woven was only used exclusively of the material that was being referenced of the high priest. So maybe John is saying to us symbolically, and that particular inner garment, that robe, that tunic, that lets us know that Jesus is the great high priest. And look at what they're doing to the high priest's garment. It is seamless and woven from top to bottom. And what John doesn't go on to say, but what I think is so very clear, especially, for instance, from Hebrews chapter 7, are these words about our Savior, about the Lord Jesus. He is the high priest. The book of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear. He is that one for it was indeed fitting, the writer to Hebrews says, that we should have such a high priest, referring to Jesus, here he is, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those Jewish high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He's our great high priest. And they took his high priestly robe as it were and they set it aside because of its beauty and its elegance it could not be torn from top to bottom it was seamless indicative I'm sure of the fact that Jesus is the great high priest and you know what Isaiah 53 12 does say he was numbered among the transgressors, and then this, and he made 
sacrifice, atonement, satisfaction for the transgressors by way of this intercession. Intercession. That's a high priestly duty. Making intercession for the transgressors. Oh, John has some historical things he wants to say and some theological things he wants to say. And fourthly and finally, his sonship. The sonship of Jesus. Look at verse 25. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. The Greek grammar of this verse could actually be that there are four ladies present, not just three, not just Jesus' mother Mary and his mother's sister Mary the wife of Clopas, but uh, comma and his mother's sister and who might she be? She might be and some commentators believe that she is, is actually the mother of the sons of Zebedee. James and John, John being the one who writes these very words. So you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's unnamed here, but we know that she's Mary, and she's probably widowed at this time. Joseph has died. The brothers of Jesus, the half-brothers, they're nowhere around because they're not yet believing. We don't find them again until the upper room in Acts chapter 1. They're not here. They're not believing. Mary is alone, and she has uh, other women around her, and one is his mother's sister, his aunt, and that could very well be the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which means that John the Apostle is the cousin of Jesus. And if that's true, notice what the Bible says in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and that is John, we believe, Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, that is John, behold your mother. You say, what does that mean? Well, it's pretty obvious that the direct and immediate meaning is that Jesus, the selfless one, is on the cross and he's concerned about his mother. If she has, in fact, been widowed and if, in fact, his half-brothers are nowhere to be found. They're not supportive of all that's going on. They don't have faith as of yet. And so Jesus selflessly looks from the cross and he says to his cousin, John the Apostle, look after her. Look after her material needs. Look after her physical needs. But you know, I think there may be something else here that's more than just that because notice the first person that Jesus references is not John, take care of my mother. It's to Mary, his own mother. Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, the one whom he loved, behold your mother. What's going on here? Well, think about this. Jesus is dying on the cross and he's the son of God. And when he dies on that cross and when he secures the salvation of sinners, he creates a whole new family a spiritual family, the family of God. We would call it the church, the bride of Christ. 
We would say that Jesus is the head of his body, the church. And so maybe in addition to just the idea of take care of my mother, John, maybe he's saying first to his own mother, I want to introduce you to now your son in the faith. The Apostle John. And John, I want to introduce you to your sister in Christ, my mother Mary, your aunt. She's now a part of the family of God. She's now a part of the body of Christ. And I want you to treat each other, not just with the material needs, not just with the physical needs, not just look after her, not just those things. It includes those things, but it's not merely such It's something like this. We're now all a part of the family, the family of God. You now see how important it is to be a part of the family of God, not just spiritually speaking, but how we take care of one another, how we minister to one another, how we care for one another. Jesus is inaugurating as the Son of God a whole new relationship. I said this in the first hour, I'll say it again. I'm closer to you than I am my own physical family. You're more precious to me because we're a part of something that my extended family knows nothing about. No spiritual connection. No relationship on a spiritual dimension. And we're a part of the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're moms and dads in Christ. And the Son of God dies in our place as our substitute. He he is the King. He is the great high priest. But as the Son of God, He's now also the head of the body of Christ. And through adoption, He's created sons and daughters all over the world who believe and who are part of the family of God. Mary... Let me introduce you to your brother in Christ and your son in the faith, John the Apostle. John, meet your aunt who's not just physically related to you. Meet a sister in Christ, my mother. It's a beautiful picture. If that's that's truly what's going on here, if that's symbolic, and we might assume such because the very last line is this, and from that Hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Not just materially, not just physically, but spiritually. And you remember in the Gospel of John, every time it talks about my hour, my hour, my hour, it is not yet come, it is not yet come, it is not yet here. And then he says, my hour has come. And now that that hour indeed did come, from that hour the family of God has been rightly constituted. And from that hour to this and even beyond our own time and into eternity, we will all be related to one another spiritually, far beyond physical, far beyond material. We are related to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're a part of the family of God. Is that not a beautiful thing? And we're related on a vertical level to the very one who made it possible, the Son of God, who himself is related to his Father by the Spirit. Folks, I tell you, John 19 might be talking about the historical facts, and he does. 
and they're all true. And he might be giving us theological weight underneath those facts. And there is certainly symbolic relevance to it all. And for us, it's substitution, kingship, priesthood, and sonship. And it is beautiful and marvelous in our eyes. Is that true for you? I pray that it is. Let's bow together. Father, we adore and magnify and glorify this sinless substitute, this King of the Jews, this King of kings and Lord of lords, this great high priest and this Son of the living God who comes to bring spiritual life and bind us together in a family that far transcends the material and the physical. Jesus himself said, Who are my mother and brothers but those who do the will of my Father in heaven? Yes, by obeying and by doing the will of the Father, you create in us and for us a family, a spiritual family that transcends even the, the physical dimensions of our relationship to each other. We are now united in Christ by adoption. We're sons and daughters. And we are so grateful. Lord, as we move so quickly to the crucifixion and in less than three Lord's Days, we will celebrate the very resurrection of Jesus Christ, which ratified the very things that we're reading here this morning. Oh, may we praise Him, glorify Him, as the dead, buried, and resurrected Lord of life, the author of life. And because it's true of me, as I was born into this world as a sinner and as I continued to exalt my sin and did not exalt the Savior, you opened my eyes and you caused me to see that I too killed the author of life by the sin of my heart and my word and my actions. And I confess and I turn from it and I embrace Jesus Christ and His death on the cross from a historical perspective and a theological one and now a spiritual one and a very personal one. He died for me. Oh, I pray that that's true of all of you who are here. If it is not, I plead with you to repent, to turn like Peter did and speak to the Lord. You can speak to Him from your own seat right there, right now. And ask Him, just like those Jews did in the book of Acts, brothers, what shall we do? You hear a message like this and I acknowledge I killed the author of life. What shall I do? What's my response? The answer from Peter's own lips, repent. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. 
Lord, please forgive me. Allow me to so trust you, even with my own eternal destiny, that you can save me from myself, from my sin. And you can see me, not as the thief who never repented, but as the one who did. And who said, remember me. And you shall say to me and to everyone who believes, today you shall be with me in paradise. May it be so. On the day of our demise, we shall be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.